Hello, everyone, and welcome to this independent media broadcast. I am joined today by Senator Malcolm Roberts. Malcolm Roberts is an Australian senator with the One Nation Party, representing my home state of Queensland. He was first elected as senator in 2016 and returned to the Senate again in 2019. The early years of Malcolm's life were spent in India before moving to central Queensland with his family, as his father worked in the coal mines, then later to the Hunter Valley, and finally settling in Brisbane. Malcolm and his wife, Christine, have two adult children and have recently welcomed their first grandchild as well. So congratulations, Malcolm. Thank you. Prior to entering politics, Malcolm has had extensive experience and success in the corporate sector and as a business owner. He completed an engineering honors degree from the University of Queensland and after graduation, worked for three years as an underground, underground coalface miner. Malcolm rose to management ranks to lead and bring about significant profitability and production improvements at underground coal mines and coal processing plants. A keen interest in business leadership and economics led Malcolm to a master's degree in business administration from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. He led the operational development of Australia's largest and most complex underground coal project that successfully set many industry first. He then established an executive consultancy specializing in leadership and management services for Australian and international clients. Welcome to Actionable Truth, Senator. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for the kind welcome, Michael, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. We've got some important topics from what you've given, given me. We, yes, we do indeed. So uh, I guess, as you're well aware, Senator, there are currently several, uh, I guess you would call them citizen initiative, initiated initiatives around the world, including one in Australia that I believe you are quite heavily involved with that call for a departure of various nations from the World Health Organization. So I believe the Australian initiative is going under the hashtag of OzExitWho. Now, giving you one of the first people I know in Australia who has called for our country to leave these global institutions, specifically the UN and the World Health Organization, and I believe you did that in as far back as 2016 during your maiden speech to the Senate, I feel that you're one of the best people in Australia to discuss the current initiative with. So I guess to start with my question to you and just to give the audience a little bit of a background, what is the exact objective behind the Oz Exit Who initiative and why do you feel it is absolutely crucial that this initiative is a success? Well, my initiative is based upon years of research and seeing how dangerous and damaging the United Nations has been to us and also now with its, with its formation of an alliance with the World Economic Forum. But all the evidence we need is in front of us with the World Health Organization's Congress recently and two working groups that are working on, first of all, the international health regulations and second group working on the pandemic, so-called pandemic treaty. Now, these are nothing more than, nothing less than coercion of the, of the most brutal inhuman kind. They want to forcibly inject people they, that's the first thing from the uh, international health regulations. They want to have the power to take over a country's health system and forcibly inject people with something that may not even be tested. Michael, that is completely wrong. That is a breach of our sovereignty. The second thing is the, the working party working on the pandemic treaty, which is much the same. A government would hand over, cede, cede its sovereignty, control over its health systems. The, U, the United Nations World Health Organization would take over. And it would take control of what people do or do not do in response to a so-called pandemic. So what, it, what, what Oz Exit is, is about is getting out of the United Nations, 
getting out of the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations, so that we have sovereignty over our own country and we do not cede more sovereignty. We've already ceded much sovereignty over our use of our land, our energy. We're following United Nations uh, protocols, uh, declarations, treaties, agreements, you call them whatever you want to call them because the United Nations uses different term each time. We are enslaved right now to the United Nations. Our country is under the heel of the United Nations. And, and our, actually, that's not, that's not really true because the ultimate power is still with our members of parliament because they, they are the ones who vote to hand over the power to the United Nations. So really, the United Nations has pushed this edict, these edicts through and our dopey bastards in Canberra and to some extent the states are the ones who are implementing this. And it's also not just the United Nations World Health Organization. There are two major funders of the World Health Organization. One is the United States of America, which is similarly captured by the globalists, the, the, the predators like Soros. Uh, and the second one, second major contributor is Bill Gates, who's making a lot of money out of uh, COVID injections. Some people call them vaccines. They're not vaccines. They're experimental gene-based therapy treatments. So what's happening is we, we're... We're setting ourselves up to say to the UN, come and administer this on behalf of Bill Gates, who wants to shove us full of injections. Literally, one every six months is what's been mooted. So that's why we've been, we've been fighting this. Bill Gates has made a lot of money out of these injections. He's been bragging about that. He was recently in Australia meeting with our Prime Minister. The Prime Minister spent less time in a severely troubled Alice Springs than he did with Bill Gates in, in, his, own, in his own mansion. Bill Gates, uh, the Prime Minister yeah. issued a notice saying uh, afterwards that Bill Gates was there to talk about health, climate, energy, and food. Bill Gates has not one single qualification in any of those fields, not one. Absolutely. He's absolutely yeah. conflicted with financial conflicts of interest in every one of them. And he's coming down here to advise our Prime Minister that's that's wrong, totally wrong. So we've got to. This is the United Nations is a crooked, corrupt, incompetent, dishonest entity. It seeks to put in place a mechanism for global governance, unelected socialist global governance. They're not my words. They're the words of various senior bureaucrats and officials at the United Nations, starting with Murray Strong, who died in 2015. He said he had two objectives for the world. One was to put in place an unelected socialist global governance, and the other one was to de-industrialize Western civilization. So phones, computers, cars, transport, gone. And they're putting in place policies to do exactly this. Now, people think that's crazy. It is crazy, but it's true because they're, they're telling us themselves they want a new world order, a new world economic order. They want a new globalist, unelected, globalist, socialist dictatorship in, in, around the planet. So that's what we're fighting. That's why we want Oz exit. Get out of the United. Get out of the United Nations. Yeah, I think uh, the uh, the term "too crazy to be true." I think uh, it's kind of been turned on its head over the last couple of years, and I think uh, at this point everyone realizes that, that really nothing is too crazy, and, and everything is kind of on the table. So I guess just to touch base on that, um, kind of circle back to that. Um, so my understanding, and, if, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So um, the World Health Organization takeover kind of is comprised, is a two-pronged attack, so to speak. Uh, one is the international health regulations, which have been in place uh, since 2015, I believe. 
and the other one is what's called the pandemic treaty, but I believe the official name for that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is the Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response Accord. I, I just know it as the pandemic treaty, yeah. Michael. But anyway, yeah, so um, I guess, can you um, uh, explain maybe a little bit uh, the difference between them and what each, what each of them aims to achieve? I know that you've done a video about it very, very recently, specifically about the international health regulations. So maybe just if you can explain a little bit more about that. Sure. The international health regulations already exist in a, in a different form. These current ones that have, that have been defeated um, just last week, they, they go much more detailed and they go into uh, injection mandates, um, you know, that where employment depends upon uh, and various other things, freedoms depend upon uh, injection status an injection passport, which is really a, a digital prison. If you don't get the injection, then you'll be penalized. You'll be denied access to various things. It'll be, it discusses regulations with regard to lockdowns, um, quarantine, restrictions, um, treatments. So they want to control exactly what happens. The pandemic treaty would give control as to who the, the United Nations World Health Organization could declare a pandemic and then take over the country's health system. So they become the unelected bureaucrats, the unelected dictators, the unelected inhuman dictators that tell you you must put something in your body or you lose basic freedoms. This is inhuman. Right. That's, that's basically what the two things are. Now, with the World, uh, World Health Congress, which sits over the top of the World Health Organization, they formed a working group in the World Health Regula International Health Regulations, and they formed a working group, a separate working group under the under the guise of the pandemic treaty. Those working groups are to build awareness and get some what you would call consensus, because they'll only work with consensus. They won't. They can't force it on nations unless there's a vote. So last time, the African nations, who are quite a, quite numerous. Um, and, and small in population, some of them, they have one vote each. So they are able to, to tell the World Health Congress that their international health regulations would not get through. So they, they've just done this exactly the same now. There's no consensus achieved. The United Nations doesn't talk in direct language. They talk in fluffy language. And if you read, the, if you read that language, as, one, as two of my staffers have, it indicates that they have squashed it for now. But, and, and that's why we, we made the video, because it has been squashed for now. Yeah. So that, that threat is over for now. But they will bring it back next year and have another go. They're still trying to build consensus. So one of the things they tried to do was to bribe the African nations, Michael. This is how dirty they get. Um, when they lost the first vote last year, they, they came back and started to talk about giving the, the African nations um, pharmaceuticals for free. Fortunately for the free world, the African nations realized that their track record of dealing with dark-skinned people is not good. They mm. basically murdered people, some of these big pharmaceutical companies. And so they don't, they don't particularly want that. So the United Nations misread that. But that's how they tried to bribe the African nations with billions of dollars of free pharmaceuticals and, and special special treatment. So the African nations look as though they're still awake to what's going on and the international health regulations have been have been squashed for now. For now. now. What we do, the reason we put out the video was to tell people that it has worked. 
because the international health regulations have been defeated for now because of public pressure around the world. Um, but, but we've also said, reminded people, it's not over. It is far from over. They will, they will come back again. Um, I, my office and I, we stopped the cash ban bill, which would have been a bill to ban transactions of cash over $2,000, which if that had gone into place, Michael, would eventually reduce that, that limit would be reduced to just hundreds of dollars cash transaction, then zero. Then they yeah. can bring in their digital currency, central bank digital currency. Then they have control over us. So we squashed that, even though both the main parties, the Liberal Nationals Coalition and the Labor, Co and the Labor Party, both pushed it through the House of Representatives. When it came to the Senate, we kicked up such a fuss with the rank and file members of both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party that they weren't game to pass it. It was, cons it was sent to a committee. That's where it died. So the point was we wanted to reinforce with people that the worldwide awareness of the international health regulations, control effort, and the pandemic treaty has to be fought. And people around the world fought, and we said to people, well done. We have to celebrate that, that success because people have to see that there is success from what they're, what they're doing. But we also said keep the pressure up, stick with your pressure on, the, on members of parliament and senators, and keep it up because this will not stop uh, anytime soon. They will continue. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into that uh, in, in great detail a little bit further in the interview. But I guess one thing also that I wanted to understand, I think it's beneficial for the audience. So you mentioned uh, the International Health Congress, which is kind of, I guess, the legislative body of the World Health Organization. So the, world, that... world, the World Health Congress. The World Health Congress, my apologies, yes. Uh, so the World Health Congress, would that be more similar to the UN General Assembly or the UN Security Council, where certain members have more power than others? I don't know the answer to that in, in detail. Um, I just know that they're, con they're configured to dishonestly drive uh, a consensus and dishonestly coerce people, nations, to, to get on board with pushing the international health regulations. Okay. All right. Another point of technicality that I think is important. Can a nation be a member of the United Nations and not be a member of the World Health Organization? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I'm I'm guessing. Well, the United United States pulled out of the World Health Organization under Donald Trump, yeah, um, and and they succeeded in pulling out. Biden brought them back. Of course, it doesn't happen immediately, but the decision was there, so they stayed within the United Nations. Although Trump yeah. has Trump had threatened to pull out of the United Nations as well. So so the answer to your question must be yes, because they stayed in the United Nations but pulled out of the World Health Organization. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, because I'm just looking on the World Health Organization website, and basically what they're saying here, all countries which are members of the United Nations may become members of the WHO by accepting its constitution. Other countries may be ad admitted as members when their application has been approved by a simple majority of the World Health Assembly, which is what you mentioned. So, yes, I mean, it, it, it's pretty obvious because I guess one of the things that your people will want to know is, OK, well, if we want our country to leave the World Health Organization, does that mean that we also must leave the United Nations, which is obviously a much more um, involved process? So, OK, so that uh, that that seems pretty, pretty, pretty clear. Michael, I, think, yeah. I, I would jump in and say we should get the hell out of the United Nations as well, because there's nothing the United Nations does. The United Nations, at best, in some of its efforts, is incompetent, bureaucratic, wasteful. Worst step, so there's some of the entities. The next step up, they're dishonest and deceitful. 
The next step up is they're completely corrupt and and destroying national sovereignty for uh, for an inhuman. It is inhuman what they want to do to take over globally global governance. So they're they were set up to do exactly that. They're not a, they're not an innocent body that's here to do good for the planet and keep peace. They failed at just about every peacekeeping mission they've ever they've ever attempted because their core purpose is not for peace, their core and development and looking after humans. Their core purpose is to get control of member states. That's it. Yeah. And obviously every member state is bound by various security councils, like you know, our resolutions and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and I do agree with you that like you know, this would be the ultimate end goal. But I guess like you know, if we wanted to do it like a, a two-step process, I just wanted to clarify whether that's possible. And uh, it seems like it is possible. So um I guess for us, I mean, as, as you can see with, with our with our name, we take a little bit of a different approach to uh, uh, reporting on current affairs. So everything that we report, we kind of try to dig really deep into the details and distill into like specific actions that people can take. So I, I guess the next uh, the next step of or the next stage of this interview, I would like to really get into the nuts and bolts of like the mechanics of how we can potentially how specifically Australia can exit the World Health Organization. And I'm assuming that like a lot of those details will be relevant to people located in other countries. But um, I, I guess you can speak from the Australian perspective. So I guess to start with, um, who in Australia has the authority to make a decision to leave the World Health Organization? The parliament, uh, the federal parliament, the national parliament in Canberra, our capital city. And it would require a, a, a majority vote in favour of pulling out of the World Health Organization in the House of Representatives and then the upper house, the Senate. So, Simple majority in both houses. Yes, yes. So the, the real work, as you, as you would be aware, uh, with your familiarity in, in the media and in governance, the real work is in what we're doing now. We're trying to build awareness because politicians, Michael, I'm sad to say, have been responsible for the destruction of this country in the hands of UN and World Economic Forum policies. We can't blame the UN and World Economic Forum because they didn't make the decision to implement them in this country. They pushed them on this country, uh, wrapped them in bullshit, lies, but it was the politicians in this country that took that on. And we, we need to see, I, I first became aware of the United Nations by doing my research on the so-called climate, um, climate, what do you want to call it? Climate breakdown, climate, uh, <laughs> the end of the planet. The current terminology is catastrophe, yeah. Catastrophe, yes. Complete rubbish. Yeah. Um, and I can go into the details on that. But but in, in I was invited to, to help someone spread the word on this. And so when I do something, I have to get the facts first, the relevant facts. And so I started doing the, the research investigation of the climate science. And there's nothing there. It is complete contradiction. Some of the basic... Um, tenets of what they're saying is it completely contradicts the empirical evidence, which is what decides science. Yeah. That no one has ever, the fundamental thing for policy, Michael, that's worth spending a bit of time on this, is to understand, is to know, define, specify the specific quantified effect of carbon dioxide from human activity on any aspect of climate. It can be on temperatures, storms, droughts, floods, uh, ocean sea levels. No one has ever quantified any effect of carbon dioxide from human activity on any temp any climate factor, not one. So there is no evidence for policy. You cannot have a policy without that because you cannot, without that, you cannot assess the various alternatives for policy 
and putting in place alternatives to, to the use of hydrocarbon fuels. You cannot track progress. So how do you know if you're effective or not? So there's no, no evidence. So when I realized that, I then started chasing who was, who was pushing this, these lies, and that was the United Nations. I then started researching the United Nations and found a history of complete corruption, riddled with corruption. I then started chasing who was, who was behind the United Nations, and it's basically the globalist predators, Black, BlackRock, Vanguard, etc. People like Soros, people like Kissinger have pushed the United Nations goals. America has become basically a puppet for the United Nations. They're, they're, they've been pushing their agenda through the United States in particular, but other nations around the world. So that's, that's, that's how they've done it. And people think it's all benign. It's not. Yeah, I think a lot less people think that it is benign now. And I mean, it is a well-known fact that, you know, I think it's the Rockefeller Foundation who uh, donated the land where like the United Nations headquarters is. So, I mean, that's, that's not in dispute. So um, everyone can make their own conclusions based on that, uh, given what we now know about the Rockefeller Organization or Foundation and other organizations like that. But I guess to go back to um, the World Health Organization or the, uh, the exit from the World Health Organization. So you mentioned, so for Australia, I would assume that'll be the case for most other countries, uh, a simple uh, majority in the parliament, which in case of Australia requires obviously the upper house and lower house. Some, some other nations uh, may have only like a, a, a single, single uh, um, house uh, in their parliament. Um, so a simple majority. Okay, so let's say we've managed to achieve that and both the House of Reps and the Senate have uh, voted, uh, have done a majority vote and passed a resolution for Australia to leave the World Health Organization. What happens then? Like, is there a notification process that uh, is triggered that, like, I know, who does that? The prime minister, the governor general, which is the Australian head of state, or how, how does, what, what happens after that? I, I don't know the specifics because no one's done it before, but yeah. the parliament, or sorry, the government of the day would have to give that instruction to the United Nations World Health Organization that we're leaving. So there are no legal outcomes that we should be aware of from whose perspective because they currently don't have punitive powers anyway. Okay. One of the things that they are considering, I can't remember where I read this, but it was, it was within one of, we've got two very good researchers on this, on this, um, on this uh, activity, on this issue. And they said that the United Nations could put in place in the event that the pandemic treaty was agreed, agreed to Michael, the United Nations could put in place sanctions for a country that does not comply with the pandemic treaty if they've agreed to it. So, mm. but that, those powers basically re require, still require some kind of vote in the United Nations. Now the globalists might orchestrate that, but in our country, we have the necessary resources to be able to stand alone. We've had as a result of the United Nations, United Nations destruction of global capacity in some nation, sorry, national capacity, national productive capacity, the hollowing out of manufacturing sector. We don't make cars anymore, for example. Mm. But so they could put sanctions on, on th those kinds of things, but it wouldn't take a lot to get it, get us up and going. We are the world's largest um, exporters of energy. So we've got plenty of energy here. It wouldn't take, we've got iron ore, we've got the basics for steel. We have the basics for, for a very, our climate is diverse. We've got good soils in certain places of the country. So we can stand alone. At the moment, we wouldn't be able to, but we could restore that capacity quite, uh, quite sensibly. So, okay. so I don't think that any sanctions would have a long-term effect on, on our country. It would hurt initially, 
but it would hurt even more, especially our citizens, Michael, if we bowed to the United Nations on a pandemic treaty or international health regulations. Yeah, 100%. And we'll get to the uh, sanctions a little bit uh, uh, later. But I guess what I wanted to, uh, I guess, clarify with you, and maybe I don't know if you know the answer for that or not, but assuming this process is successful and Australia formally departs the World Health Organization, we're no longer members, but say, for the sake of argument, we remain members of the United Nations. Is Does that extinguish any authority that the World Health Organization now has or may have in the future towards Australia? So we are no longer members of the WHO, but we are still part of the United Nations. My understanding is yes. Okay. And, and, and Michael, we have to remember that even things the United Nations come up with are not binding on us. Mm -hmm. They don't become binding. And the United Nations has got nothing to do with it other than, other than sowing the seeds for this to come into our parliament and our parliament passes it. Now, what I've just said is, is fundamentally true. But there, there are details in terms of exceptions because some of the, the, the dopey treaties, um, agreements, protocols, declarations that our governments have signed in the past give an automatic updating function to future amendments if they've been agreed to. I mean, that is completely wrong. They're ceding the governance of our country to foreigners who've got no, no, um, who've got no loyalty to our country. So when I say if we pull out, we pull out, that's fine, but the United Nations World Health Organization would have no authority over us because we would be out of it. Okay, all right. Well, so that 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 make it, makes it pretty clear. So I guess uh, you mentioned sanctions previously. So uh, I guess let, let's get back into that. So um, say again, Australia has formally left the World Health Organization. Uh, what are the potential like implications on us? I mean, just doing that would that trigger sanctions in all likelihood or? What are the potential implications of, of for, for our country if we leave the WHO? It would be very difficult to trigger sanctions just for leaving the WHO. Okay. The, the, the sanctions that I was talking about were to be incorporated in the pandemic treaty, not okay. for just pulling out of the WHO. That's my understanding of it. Of course, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not, not completely familiar with it. The key part of this, this, Michael, is to recognize that we have to build political pressure for this. Now, the majority of people in this country would not be aware of just how evil the United Nations is. But when, when we first started talking about this, very few people were aware of it. People who are aware of the climate scam, um, they were aware of it. They were aware of Agenda 21. Very few people in the country were aware of Agenda 21, which became Agenda 2030. Mm -hmm. But they're more and more getting aware of it. So the first deal, first step we have to take is to make people aware of it. And that requires a political campaign to do that. Now, when I entered the Senate, a very knowledgeable and very strong person who stood out very strongly in this country speaking out against governments when they overstepped their mark, he called me and said, Malcolm, don't mention Agenda 21. Hmm. And I was stunned because this man is very strong and nothing stops him speaking out. And what he was concerned about was that by mentioning Agenda 21, I'll be looked upon as a conspiracy theorist and all the rest of that rubbish. We know Agenda 21 is real. I don't know yeah. if you can see that. I can, yes. Yeah, and there are many, many references to the Agenda 21. Um, there's also...
There's also a wonderful document that uh, former Premier of Western Australia wrote called Rebuilding the Federation. And, and it's a very short book, but he shows how the abuse of the external affairs power has enabled the United Nations to get in and corrupt our country. We've had... You still there? Yeah, still, still there. Sorry, just setting up something. Apologies. There, there's a chart there of uh, various steps that the High Court has, has uh, it decided, various decisions the High Court has made that, that lead to the erosion of our sovereignty in this country through the external affairs powers. And, and, and so it's very, very real. And as a result of COVID, what we saw was a mass awakening so that many, many more people now, they, they saw this COVID and they realized how cruel and inhuman and immoral it was. It's basically a massive wealth transfer and a, and a, and a putting people under control based on deceit. And people started waking up. And so now COVID has been terrible for our economy. It's been terrible for our people. COVID itself has not hurt us, but the government's restrictions have, cru have crueled this country, just like they have many countries. And, and COVID itself, the chief medical officer told me its severity is low to moderate. So people are waking up to that fact. And now they're saying, what the hell was that all about? And they, they can see that the United Nations World Health Organization has been deceitful in that. They can also see that the globalist predators have been deceitful in that. And so they're waking up to this global control. Yeah, I think, look, with, with Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, yeah, for, for, for many, many years, it was considered a conspiracy theory, even, uh, even though the documents were actually available for all to download. I think the same goes probably to the Great Reset Initiative, where a lot of people, I think even to this day, still convinced that, like, you know, it's a conspiracy theory, even though, like, you know, the WEF has a massive section on their website about it, and, and Klaus Wolf literally wrote a book that you can buy on Amazon and read for yourself, but it is, it is, I guess, the nature of uh, uh, um, the beast, and this is, I guess, why independent media is here to uh, talk about things that, you know, you will never hear on the mainstream media, and we definitely have our work cut out for us. So I guess that kind of ties in uh, perfectly to my next question, which is, okay, you mentioned that this, this requires political power and political will, and this requires basically grassroots, grassroots movement or grassroots actions by everyday Australians and a large group of everyday Australians or pretty much the majority of everyday Australians to make that happen. So um, obviously, uh, I would imagine that some of those actions obviously contact the members of parliament and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, do petitions and things like that. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to understand is, are there any other things that you suggest for people to do, especially given the current composition of, of parliament, which is, um, I guess, a little bit problematic for ideas such as this. Yes. Well, the, the first thing is that when, when I got that, that man who I admire enormously uh, as opinion, advice to not talk about Agenda 21, I just completely ignored that because the truth is that it is an inhuman um, agreement, not an agreement, it's an inhuman set of instructions from the United Nations that our politicians have blindly followed. Now, I know that some of those politicians were good people who just assumed that it was environmentally driven and necessary. They woke up when I had conversations with them. So I realized we could wake them up. So what I did was stand my ground and my first speech called on Oz Exit, which is exiting the United Nations. 
Uh, one of the first things I did with the, the COVID um, when it arrived in Australia was exit the United Nations World Health Organization. These, these, these outfits are criminal act, uh, outfits. They're, they're certainly inhuman. But what we've got to do is also draw people's awareness to the massive costs of the United Nations programs imposed on everyday citizens. Our electricity, we're the world's largest exporters of energy. When I was a boy in the Hunter Valley, which is near Newcastle, um, Alcan built a smelter there, one of the world's, I think the world's largest aluminium producer at the time. They built a smelter at Curry Curry, which is in the heart of the Hunter Valley. Why? Because of the abundant, cheap, high quality, clean thermal coal for generating power. Because the biggest component of, of, of uh, aluminium smelting is electricity. So, so that was why they built a smelter there. Then they built a, then another company built a second smelter there. We've got smelters in other states. They're shutting down. That means those jobs are gone. And who's opening up the jobs? China. Who supplies the raw materials to China? We do. So we're missing out on the, on the, um, the added value. So we missed so cost of electricity now. We, we export coal to China. China burns coal in its power stations and sells the coal for, sells the power, the electricity for eight cents a kilowatt hour. We use the same coal here. We don't have to ship it halfway around the world. We burn it at a power station, no transport costs, and we charge 25 cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. And, and, and the number one component these days in manufacturing is electricity prices. And so what we're doing is by artificially raising the electricity price, we're destroying our competitiveness. The manufacturing companies then move their operations to China. China builds um, wind turbines and solar panels with our coal, and then they export them here. We subsidize them to install them, which further drives up the cost of electricity to our own people, which further shuts down jobs, further shuts down manufacturing and, and service sectors. So what we've got to do is make people aware that when they feel a hip pocket pain, it's because of the United Nations. It's because of the lies. And then we have to give them the, the absurdities. First of all, the, the Chinese are wanting to install power, uh, solar and wind generators here with our subsidies, and they're destroying our own electricity sector. They're destroying our own manufacturing base. Now, the Chinese, I'm not against the Chinese for doing that. I'm against our dopey governments for doing it. The Chinese are only realizing that we want to buy wind turbines and, and solar panels. And so they're only supplying them. But Australia has the highest per capita subsidization of solar and wind in the world. Way ahead wow. of, we're way ahead of Spain. We're double the next highest, which is the United States. So every country in which I get angry about this, but every country which has had a significant increase in solar and wind has had a massive increase in electricity prices. Spain did it. The United States is doing it. California is doing it. Every country. And so we haven't learned that lesson. And the Chinese are using our raw materials to ship us this, these things and making money out of it and making money out of subsidies and getting jobs from us in, in exchange. So we have to make people aware of how that's working out in practice and why they're paying for it at the, at the, at whenever they use electricity. And it's needless. Yeah. So we have to help people to understand the absurdity and the deceit. Yeah, absolutely. I think when, when it comes to like hitting people in their uh, hip pocket, I think that's when people kind of uh, pay attention and uh, try to figure out what to do about it. 
Um, but I guess, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of people writing to uh, uh, members of parliament, ministers, uh, senators from, from other parties and kind of receiving very kind of stock standard replies, specifically about the WHO initiative or about exiting the WHO, uh, where like, look, it's like nothing to worry about. And either way, like, you know, we're in charge, Australia is in charge, basically kind of phobing them off uh, and uh, reassuring people that there's nothing to worry about. So. I guess my objective is obviously to um, clarify through you that there is definitely absolutely something to worry about. And well, there's something also, excuse me for interrupting, but there's yep. something also to celebrate because we've, we've just knocked out the international health regulations. And when I say we, I'm talking about people all around the world. They've joined in on this and put pressure on their politicians and, and the Africans in particular have, have put pressure as governments on, on the yep. World Health World Health. Um, Congress's working party. So we have to celebrate. It's very, very important because if we just, I mean, the last three years has been terrible for people. Wave after wave of control and, and bad mm -hmm. news and hype and exaggeration and fear. We've got to celebrate the achievements. And then the second thing we've got to, you notice in my video that I said at the end, you've got to keep going. Now, if we just flog people and say, keep going, keep going, keep going, they give up. But if you celebrate the achievements, which is important when it's providing it's done truthfully, then people can see that they're effective, they're more likely to continue because they must continue. Okay, now Sorry. I know that, yeah, I know that you're personally, uh, you and I, I, I believe Senator Antic as well are personally involved with the uh, with the Australian initiative. So, I mean, I guess, is there anything that maybe you can reveal about, about maybe potential uh, uh, future campaigns of that particular initiative that people can get behind or anything along those lines? Not flagging anything at the moment. We're we're in a minority, very very small minority in in the in the yeah. Senate. Um, we don't have any reps in the House of Reps. We're growing. We've now got uh, representatives in state parliaments in uh, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. So four of the six mainland states, four of the six states, we've got representatives in. So we're growing. We just recently got a, a our first representative into Victoria's parliament. So we're growing in that sense. So, but we're still small in clout. So what we have to do is really educate people. And, you know, when, when I, when I entered this, this um, arena with climate well before I became a politician, if you'd have told me then that I'd be calling to exit the United Nations, I would have looked at you as if you're crazy, mm. but there's nothing clearer now than, than that very thing. So it's a matter of learning and everyone has to learn the facts because that's only by learning the facts. Can we be confident in telling our friends? We have to tell our friends, we have to tell our families, we have to tell our workmates, we have to tell our, uh, our sporting club uh, clubmates. So we have to get spread the word as much as possible and get the facts so that we can stand up to scrutiny. Get the facts. Because people don't argue with me anymore because they know I'll come prepared with the data. So that's what we have to do. Each of us has to educate ourselves, educate our family and friends, just like COVID, the same thing. Um, so any issues like this, we need to educate ourselves and then put pressure on politicians and writing emails to politicians is almost useless because they just, they just get swamped in emails. They don't read anything. They don't take any notice of it. But if you call, if you visit their office and say, I want to see the, I want to see the member of parliament, you'll get put off, but you just stick to it until you get to see them. Right. Or you say, I want to leave a message. That, that's, that's the biggest form. Just visit their offices, senators and members of parliament. The second biggest is to telephone them and get, get, to, get to speak with them. That's pretty rare too. But just 
pester them. Be polite, be respectful, but pester them. Don't annoy the staff. Just just tell the staff you want to speak to them. The third way is to write an original letter, either in handwriting or typed and signed by a handwritten signature. That carries more weight than an email. Emails are yeah. almost useless. So yeah. those things. Also, um, write letters to the editor. Get on Talkback Radio. I know some friends who are in New South Wales who are avid Talkback Radio um, speakers, and, and they do a hell of a job. Um, I spoke on Talkback Radio the other day as a guest, and the the, um, the switchboard was lit up for, for an hour or so afterwards. They wanted, they wanted me to come back. So people are hungry for this, but they must have good, accurate information, so spread the facts. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely agree with uh, with regards to the emails. I mean, just anecdotal evidence for my personal situation. So, I mean, my local member is actually the, the former Minister of Home Affairs, and I, I contacted her office and even mentioned that we basically run a media platform, and I haven't even received a reply. So I've, I've called the office several times trying to tee up a meeting to discuss that, haven't heard back. So there you go. Uh, and that's actually my local member. So um, <laughs> make of it what you will. So, um, all right, that, that, that's pretty clear, Senator. I really appreciate that. Um, I guess uh, one other topic that I wanted to touch um, touch on with you, it is, I guess, maybe a little bit controversial, but I think it's very, very timely because it's uh, literally news that has broken out, I think, in the last week or so, um, just with regards to uh, the TGA and then potentially hiding information about uh, fatalities amongst uh, young kids and uh, teenagers that they themselves, okay, established a, a causal link with the vaccines. So basically they, in their own documents, and, and those documents were obtained uh, through fr freedom of information request by Dr. Melissa McCann, a general yes. practitioner based in Whitsunday, who's doing an amazing job. Um, amazing. Um, so she basically received confirmation, documentary proof from, uh, lim albeit limited, but uh, documentary proof from the PGA, whereby they themselves established a causal link between uh, several deaths of children, I think ranging from um, as, as young as seven to uh, seven 21. and nine. Seven and nine, yep. but, but there were some up to 17, yes. Yeah, and uh, um, basically they themselves established the link and then they hid the data. So they basically hid their data from their uh, public register, even uh, the information that they provide to Dr. McCann, which I believe by law has to be uh, also shown on, on the TGA website. So basically any documentation that was provided as a result of freedom of information also has to be uh, provided on the TGA website. They haven't provided that. And when Dr. McCann reached out to them and say, why haven't you put it on your own website? Um, the, she basically got a reply along the lines of, uh, look, we haven't really spoken to the families about that, so we feel that it's inappropriate, and also it may put off other people from reporting adverse reactions because then, well, they, they will think that the TJ can't keep it a secret. So that, that's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty damning indictment so far, but I guess um, the biggest thing is at the head of the TGA, Professor, uh, Professor Skerritt, uh, he appeared before Senate Estimate Committee hearing, uh, I believe that you attended personally last week. Correct. And, and in response to a direct question, he basically said that the TGA didn't hide any data and he was actually quite um, um, angry uh, saying, look, why, why would we hide the deaths of seven and nine-year-olds? 
So I guess that contradicts directly with some of the information that is now public knowledge. So I guess we'd love to hear your comments about that. I have no faith in, in uh, Professor Skerritt, none at all. I do not trust him. Um, he, he has, under his, under his leadership, the Therapeutic Goods Administration has suppressed the use of medicinal cannabis, which is a wonderful, wonderful product. It was widely used. I think it was the number one um, prescribed treatment back in the 30s in America. Um, and yet it's been, it's been tarnished so that, I believe, so that the, the opiates could come up and, and, and be flogged by Big Pharma onto the market. Medicinal cannabis has no known side effects at all. Medicinal cannabis is known to be highly effective for many, many things, including psychological uh, treatment. And we're not talking about um, psychotropic drugs here. We're talking about medicinal cannabis. It is wonderful. The TGA has suppressed that. The TGA um, tried to, it, it sent me a threatening letter because I was talking about ivermectin in hmm. 2020, 2021, 2022. I've never stopped talking about ivermectin except on Facebook and YouTube because I got banned. So I, I can't do that there. It's better to have some voice than no voice at all. But I've been talking about ivermectin in the Senate in publicly anywhere. And, and the TGA sent me a letter saying that I'm contravening, contravening various parts of some of its legislation. And, and, and it, was, it was very threatening. So I re they're bullying. And the best way to handle a bully is to stand up and get in their face. So I responded to them by saying two things. I'm not advertising ivermectin. I'm doing my normal job as a, as a, as a member representing constituents. How dare you interfere with the, with the proper duties of a senator fulfilling his responsibilities to the community? And then I said the government, through Greg Hunt, has blood on its hands for stopping ivermectin. And I got a response back saying, thank you for your letter. That's it. Yeah. So the, the Therapeutic Goods Administration showed its hand there. The, and that's not the only institution that, that's, um, that's coercive and bullying. The ARPA is doing the same. We know that for a fact. Uh, they deny it, but we know that. Therapeutic Goods Administration also removed ivermectin. That's the first time in our country history that a, a known safe drug has been withdrawn and prevented from treatment to people who are desperately ill and needing treatment. Ivermectin has now been proven. It was at the time, but it's now been completely proven to be highly effective against, against uh, COVID. It's, it's known to be safe. It's been given out in almost 4 billion doses over 40 years. And, and so it's also affordable. And we believe that the TGA withdrew that because if people had a chance of an experimental gene, gene therapy-based treatment on one hand with lots of potential side effects, or a harm, or a um, an effective, proven, safe, affordable, accessible, easy treatment in the form of ivermectin. They're not going to take the expensive injection, the risky injection. They're going to take the proven, safe drug. Now, Pierre Corey uh, has, has established 95 peer-reviewed papers, studies that established beyond doubt that ivermectin is highly successful. We know that Uttar Pradesh in India stopped ivermectin almost within days. We know that it's highly effective. We know that in, in Africa, which has been using ivermectin for many years to prevent paralysis, uh, to parasites rather, had very little incidence of, of uh, COVID in, in Africa because 
it's a prophylactic. It's not just a treatment. It's a prophylactic. It prevents it. Now, the, mm. the COVID injections from Big Pharma do not stop transmission, do not stop you getting it, do not help you after a few weeks. There's, there's even and, and severe side effects, including death. And yet ivermectin is safe, proven, effective, affordable and accessible. So that's why the TGA. The TGA also said that um, Mr. S Professor Skerritt said this. I've forgotten the number, but he said the FDA in America has billions of dollars in its annual budget, billions. And he said that they have 15,000 employees. Now, when, when, when uh, COVID first arrived in this country and the, the injections first arrived, sorry, he made out, as did the chief medical officer and the, federal, the secretary of the Federal Health Department, that we have tested these in this country and approved them in this country. That's false because he just said himself on in Senate estimates last week that we can't do that here. We have to rely on the FDA. Well, the news for him is that the FDA did not approve those injections. They were, they were countermeasures developed by the Department of Defense under Department of Defense contracts. They didn't go through the FDA. We know that for a fact. Yep. So if anyone asks me why I don't trust Professor Skerritt, there are just three examples. But, but the other thing, specifically on the issue you raised, Michael, about, about um, those deaths of, of uh, young children, Senator Rennick, Senator Antic, and I all challenged him on those deaths. We came back, Senator Rennick and I refused to stop questioning. The chair of the committee wanted us to, to let, us, let them get on with questioning for, for aged care. And we could see that. So we, we got another 15 minutes out. I gave most of that time to Senator Rennick, kept five minutes for myself. And my two questions were, of, of uh, both of uh, Skerritt, first of all, show us the documents that you relied on, that you told us about in previous Senate estimates, that you relied upon for pr approving these drugs on a provisional basis. He refused to let us see those, those documents. Then he said, th then we said, well, surely you must have a summary. You must have made a summary before you provisionally approved them. That's, that's correct. You, we want to see them. No, you can't see them. Mm. If he's, that, that, that's the first document. So he's hiding that. But the second one was coming back to what Rennick and Antic and, and I asked about. And that was the, the, the deaths of young children. Michael, if you have a piece of paper that he said, Skerritt said, does not that does not indicate deaths the quickest way to solve it is to redact the, the the names redact the identification of anybody and show us that document hmm. but he didn't he refused to do that he's got something to hide he's shown that by his own actions i do not trust him at all yeah and i mean there is a video that i think surfaced yesterday by, by dr chris martinson from the us for my big prosperity and basically what he did, he actually looked in the public um, um, database of the TGA and basically those specific case numbers that have been mentioned in the Freedom of Information request, in the documents that were provided, it shows that like, you know, there is a causal link. But in the public record, it shows undetermined for the same for the same cases. So that's, I mean, make of it what you will. But I guess anecdotally, and I'm, I'm just not familiar with that, but I mean, what are the potential implications, and I'm not insinuating anything, but what are the potential implications 
for a senior public uh, servant making false statements in front of the Australian Senate during, like, estimate during a formal committee hearing. It, it, it's contempt of the Senate, and I think I'm not sure about this. I think the penalties can include jail for misleading right. the Senate. And and what you've got here, if that's the case, and and the way I see things, that's the way it stacks up to me. Okay. Um, then if that's the case and we can prove that, see, it's difficult at times because you have to go to intent as well. Was it just a mistake or was it intentional? And we can't see inside people's minds. So there are very strict um, requirements for proving intent. So that, that has to be the case. Um, but, but there are severe penalties. Okay, well, yeah, I'll leave it at that, and uh, I guess I'll leave people to draw their own conclusions. Uh, I guess the last two things. Well, that I, I think I think uh, before you go, Chain, before you go to the next topic, we have to congratulate Melissa McCann for Absolutely. what she's done in the freedom of information. That woman, I met her for the first time in uh, the Gold Coast when uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch and Dr. Pierre Corey spoke and John uh, Leake spoke, but Melissa was the first speaker. Could you imagine that? And the Pax Stadium, high, you know high, uh, what do you call them, high, high, high angle slope. So it would have been very daunting. And she was out there under the lights and she gave a wonderful speech. And then I found out from a husband who was with her later on after the speech, that that was her first speech in public. Wow. And she was brilliant. Um, and what shone through was a woman of in complete integrity, complete, uh, enormous courage, who has taken these bastards on and, and moved down every step and everything they've thrown in their way, she's just tossed out of the way. She's, she's very bright. She's very dedicated. She's very caring. And, and she, her clinic was injecting people with these COVID injections. And, and so for someone to, to see that and notice the adverse events, it says two things. First of all, she had the courage to pull them on. That secondly, why aren't many other doctors doing it? Because yeah. opera has been has been intimidating doctors, the TGA has been intimidating doctors. It's it's just disgraceful what's going on. Yeah, and there's obviously uh, two very specific uh, cases that are quite famous. Uh, um, obviously, with uh, Dr. Nixon, or I should probably say former Dr. Nixon and former Dr. Bay, uh, both Queenslanders. I'm sure you're familiar with their stories and their struggles with opera. Uh, but I guess yeah, I mean, look, with with, with Dr. McCann, I think it's uh, um, I think uh, Chris Martinson put it best when he said basically you guys should uh, name her in a, uh, like a national treasure, and I fully agree with him on that one. I think the work that she's done is absolutely incredible. Uh, I guess the last two questions that I wanted to uh, uh, ask you, Senator, and they're a little bit more kind of generic. Uh, um, I guess one of the problems, in my opinion, or the main problems that we have in this country that kind of resulted in, in the situation that we are in is uh, we don't emphasize enough critical thinking skills in our school system, which uh, as a result kind of really promotes groupthink and, and kind of towing the party line, so to speak. Um, not 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 standing out. Uh, the tall poppy syndrome, I guess, falls into that as well. W what are your thoughts about it? I mean, how what what can we do uh, as as I guess in schools and also as parents to uh, instill critical uh, thinking skills in in our population and especially the kids? Well, well it, it's a wonderful topic you've raised. Thank you so much for raising that. Um, with with the COVID, and and I'll answer your question in a very indirect way, because we have to go back to basics. With COVID, people just could not believe that bureaucrats and politicians would dare kill people. 
but Zuba, Zuma, is it Zuba? The um, the African American, African British, Britain, who uh, um, he's now got a very big following on YouTube. He's got a list of twenty-one things that that politicians can do that you wouldn't believe, kind of thing. Mm. He said one of them was that politicians will let people die or will kill people rather than tell the truth. He is a hundred percent correct. Politicians are no different from others. Many people are sheep. They follow and they're afraid to stick their hand up and say, hey, can you, ask, can you answer me a question? I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you please help me? Politicians are afraid to do that. They think that shows weakness, whereas it shows strength. So what, what I'm getting to there is that under COVID, people really started learning and they start, started seeing so many things that were questionable. But they thought, this can't be true. Mm. Lockdowns are, are the wrong way to go. Restrictions are the wrong way to go. Withholding a treatment like ivermectin is the wrong way to go. Not only is it the wrong way to go, it is inhuman and immoral. It's anti-human. So what we saw was people thinking, oh, my goodness, how can this possibly be? But, Michael, there were so many initiatives that were put in place that were integrated. This wasn't cooked up in three months. It wasn't cooked up in three years. This started being integrated back in 2008 and the formation of APRA that followed that. APRA was there to block the doctors, to suppress the doctors, suppress honesty coming out, suppress reporting of inje injection deaths. So were many other, Atagi, APRA, the chief, the chief medical officer. These people have all been involved in misrepresenting the science, misrepresenting the medicine, misrepresenting doctors. This is really serious stuff. And this, um, some of them would have been their predecessors, but this has been orchestrated and integrated. Then you have a massive campaign called the national, national law. There's no such thing as national law. We have state parliaments passing state laws and we have federal parliaments pa parliament passing federal laws. State law is basically, sorry, national law is basically the name given to a state, in this case Queensland, that comes up with legislation, in this case APRA, oh, sorry, Queensland equivalent of APRA, and then mirroring that in all the other states. So you have a state law that is across the nation in all the states. That's how they've done it. Now, the, the, um, the national cabinet, the so-called national cabinet, is a complete lie. It goes against the constitution. It goes against the constitution. But it was developed for the, the federal government to have power over the health sector, where, where in the constitution it doesn't have that power. So this has all been about a highly integrated system that's taken decades to put in place, well thought through, and is against the constitution. So now, if you can understand that, that they're doing that in health, which is easy to understand now, they're doing the same in education. One of the, I've, I've lived in, and worked in eight states in America. I've traveled through all 50 states. I've, I've studied in, in uh, one or two of the states, one state. Um, so, and I'm married to an American. My children are joint American and, and, and Australian citizens. So I know a fair bit about the states. And I was very fascinated by the states when I've traveled through all 50 of them over a period of about 15 months. And time and time, again, the message was, that the United States at the time of its formation was blessed with so many highly competent, dedicated people, dedicated not just to their country, but dedicated to humanity. And they looked at Europe and said, we don't want that. And what, what was in Europe was central governments, 
and privately owned central banks controlling central governments, creating war to make profit, creating welfare to make profit. The United States didn't want that. They developed competitive federalism. And so education is the responsibility in this country. We, we took the same system, competitive federalism, give the majority of the, of the, of the services provided by government to the states. Then you have comp competition, you have accountability. Mm. And, and so that has been usurped in this country. Education is clearly a state responsibility, but it has been taken over by the federal government in many, many ways, aspects of it. And so what we'll find now is 4,000 bureaucrats in the Federal Department of Health not one student, 4,000 bureaucrats. What are they doing? They're creating things like the national curriculum. Where's the national curriculum come from? The United Nations. And this dumbing down of our population has been deliberate, integrated by the United Nations through our federal governments for decades now. That's, the, that's why we have to stop, first of all, get out of the United Nations, but even so then get back to our constitution and get most of the services done by the states so that there's real accountability. So the f first thing you'll see in an answer to your destruction of critical thinking is it's been integrated, it's been orchestrated deliberately and carefully. What you're seeing is the result of a, of a process that's been designed to do that. The second thing is that it is happening. People have lost their critical thinking skills. The third thing I would say is that we humans respond to fight flight respond to threats with fight flight or freeze that's programmed into us and we have a, a, a huge neocortex that's very very capable of clear rational logical thinking but when fear takes over it bypasses that neocortex and fear dominates and when we have fear we tend to look to authority so what you'll see in in the covid gross COVID mismanagement and deceit is a deliberate orchestrated campaign of intense fear. Every aspect of it. Get the injection, Michael, because you're saving granny at the aged care home. Even if you don't want it, do it for her sake. And, and then they start labeling things like you're not caring about your granny because you won't get the injection. And people are intimidated into it. Then they say you'll lose your job if you don't get the injection. So what I'm saying is it's, it's very, very much, um, uh, what, what do they call it? Mass psychosis, mass formation psychosis. It's been very well planned. It's a huge propaganda outfit. Everything has been carefully massaged. But the education system, to get back to that, the education system has been destroyed in this country. It started with the universities first because that's where the teachers graduate from. Then once they started getting graduates from out of the, the, the uh, teaching schools, then they went into the schools to corrupt the students. So the only thing we can do really I believe, is get parents back involved in the school. Stand up. Get a look at the curriculum. Stop teaching the, 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 um, the, the gender transformation rubbish to young kids. Stop teaching sexuality to young children under the, age of, under the age of 16. Stop doing that. Give people proper education when they need it. A fundamental to good education is you give someone um, new information when they're about to use it. If you give it to them early on, they just ignore it. But these are corrupting. These are corrupting um, influences. And secondly, the fundamental aspect of the United Nations is to destroy national governance and national sovereignty, to create a global governance. The second thing that they do is destroy the family. They've done that through exaggerating gender dysphoria and blowing it into gender transformation, affirm affirming action, um, sexuality, uh, 
family law. The family law family law system in our country came from the United Nations 50, 1975, almost 50 years ago. These have all been developed to destroy the family because when, when the family is destroyed, people turn to the government mm. and it makes them dependent. So the best thing we can do is is to, to wake children up, to prevent this, this to, to restore critical thinking, is to get parents having conversations, to get children having conversations, to, to start developing those skills, questioning, questioning, questioning. That's fundamental. Yeah, here, here. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, obviously the lack of it has, has, has caused some, some serious damage and hopefully people will learn the lesson from that. I guess my last question to you, Senator, and that's specifically for you as an elected representative. I mean, what do you think are the key lessons for elected representatives in general from everything that happened over the last two years, just to make sure that stuff like that never happens again? There's a premise in your question that says they want to learn. I think that premise is fundamentally flawed. Mm. Um, what we have now, Michael, is we don't have people representing uh, the the voters or the citizens in their district. We have people who are under the control of party power brokers. So basically, it's, they're, they're saying, Michael, if you want to be re-elected, you need to be pre-selected. If you want to be pre-selected, vote this way. So we have power brokers behind the scenes calling the shots in the Liberal National Party and also in the Labor Party and the Greens. We also have those power brokers are quite often connected directly with the United Nations and they're pushing the United Nations agenda. We also have, instead of relying upon listening to the members, the Liberal, Labor and National Parties and Greens do not listen to the members, listen to the voters because they can't action what the people want. They're putting in place policies to destroy cost of living, to raise cost of living. They're not going to listen to people with ideas for improving the cost of living. They can't put them into place. So what you what you what you found in this country is a fundamental disconnect between politicians and and what their real roles are supposed to be. I am paid every every speech that's more than three minutes in length. I start with the words as a servant to the people of Queensland and Australia. Okay, when I first did my first speech in the Senate. The Labor Party laughed at me. Some of the Liberal Party sniggered. So what we've seen now, I can walk out of the Senate after doing a strong speech con condemning climate, climate alarm and climate catastrophism, and I can walk up to decent people in the Labor Party, walking down the corridor with them. They'll pat me on the back and say, keep going, mate, keep going. They want me to keep going. And it's, it's not for their – because they, they can't. Um, the only difference between the Labor Party and the Liberal National Party is that no one in the Labor Party will stand up. And there are some decent people in the Labor Party, but they will not stand up. In the Liberal National Party, you will get some people standing up on some issues. Senator Rennick, Senator Antic, George Christensen before he moved to our party, Craig Kelly before he before he left politics, or before he, before he um, went with United Australia, Pauline Hanson, myself. We will speak up. And then on some topics, some others speak up. But the majority of times, they just follow the sh follow like sheep. So there's no way that they are capable of, of listening and learning. I'm sad to say that, but with with more more people in in the in the minor parties, if we can get more people in the minor parties, then we can put pressure on through the crossbench. That's when we'll get start getting change. So in in our country, the voters are the only people who can change the constitution. We are a constitutional monarchy. We are not a monarchy. 
the king and queen do not rule us. They serve our constitution. The only people who can change our constitution are the voters. Voters need to realize that they're the ones who determine whether or not I get another term. They're the ones who put me in or not. The voters need to realize they're the, they're the sovereign entity in this country. They need to wake up and start putting, putting, holding politicians accountable and putting people in who will work for them, not work for the power brokers. And the power brokers in turn are working for the United Nations and the globalists. People making money out of climate change are the wealthy billionaires and the globalist predators. Mm-hmm. We're giving all kinds of money to the wealthy billionaires to subsidize wind and solar. And we're destroying our electricity sector. It's just wealth transfer, just like Gates made billions of dollars out of these injections. It is all about globalist billionaires behind the scenes getting fat. And who pays? The people of Australia. So what we have to do is get the people of Australia to wake up. That's why we talk about getting out of the UN. Yep. Do you think a viable solution, that really will be my last question, do you think one of a potential viable solution will be introducing recall elections similar to what exists? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Pauline Hanson uh, has long had that as one of her policies in the in the One Nation Party, in our party. Um, we call it citizens initiated referendum. Um, yeah, definitely. That's, you know, I, I had an old friend. I was born in India and raised there in my formative years till I was about seven. And we, we live with with uh, Indians and also with expats. And one of the expats was uh, Auntie Betty. Um, and we met up with her in Australia many years later. And she was in her 60s, right? And she's never been interested in politics. She's just not one of those people, which is fine. And she went to Switzerland and she came back on a holiday with her husband. And I said to Auntie Betty, and I must have been in my 20s by then or whatever. I said, Auntie Betty, what do you think of Switzerland? And I was expecting her to say, oh, it's so clean. The people are friendly, the, the magnificent mountains and the scenery and all this. You know what she said? She said, the politicians are responsible. And I went, what? And, and, and I, I knew why, because they have citizens initiated referendum with a certain percentage, a very small percentage of voters who petition for a member of parliament to be tossed out because of dishonesty or corruption or a bill that they've passed to be repealed, that is easily done with a vote of the majority of the people. Then that brings responsibility for the politicians because at the moment the politicians can get away with that with anything except for me and Pauline and a couple of liberals who will dare speak up. So recall elections, fundamental, fundamental for accountability. We've got to get them in. That's why they're part of One Nation policy. Excellent. Well, uh, I guess on that positive note, I mean, we, we, we can really add our conversation. I think, I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. I think there's uh, about, if I'm not mistaken, about six countries around the world where they have provisions for recall elections and, and the level of corruption in all of them uh, is significantly lower. And also, anecdotally, there is like the governments there don't actually change as often as like, you know, countries that don't have that. So it doesn't necessarily contribute to, to instability in government or things like that. So I, I think the proof is in the pudding. And yeah, I agree with you. This is something that Australia should really consider. And I think it was it, it was never more urgent than now. So yeah, definitely something to think about. Yep. So yeah, uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Roberts, for coming on board. I think we covered a lot of very, very important topics. Uh, most importantly, uh, the departure from the WHO. Um, we'll do everything uh, on our part to make sure that that, that is a success because I personally think this is probably the most crucial step that Australia can take now that is actually practical and achievable. And um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again. Yes, and I, and I want to thank you because the mouthpiece media is owned by the globalists. It's It's been completely complicit in pushing this COVID um, gross mismanagement. 
Social media is uh, is funded by Gates in particular to suppress the truth. That leaves only the independent people's media, which is pushing truth and pushing freedom. And that's where we need to get more and more people like yourself and actionable truth out there. So we'll do anything we can to support you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And thanks again for coming on board. You're Talk welcome. You Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye, Michael.